Matthew chapter 6, the verses we'll focus on are verses 25 to 34. Jesus talking to us about worry. And in case you think I'm an expert when it comes to living a life of perfect tranquility without any worry, no. Go ask anybody that knows me well, and this has probably got to be up in the top three things that I wrestle with as a Christian. In fact, the heading for this passage in my Bible kind of bothers me. And it's, it's, God didn't write the headings, the headings somebody else put there, but mine says, the cure for anxiety. Like, I wish it was that simple, right? Now, granted, if I could master these verses and perfectly apply them to my life, I would have a cure for anxiety. But until I get to heaven, I anticipate, just like all the other truths of God's words, that I will have to continue to wrestle and strive to apply these truths to my life. So instead of titling the lesson, The Cure for Anxiety, it's about the command of Jesus here, do not worry. And I think it's important, it really connects with, even though we'll focus on verses 25 to 34, it really connects with what Jesus says in the passage before this on treasure and wealth. And we live in a world of striving, striving. People all around us are striving. We see it everywhere we go. We, we feel that impulse in our own lives to strive for more and more. Um, oftentimes when you look at the world around us, what people are striving for are the very things that John in 1 John says, don't love the world because of these things. Don't love the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, yet the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, that's really what most people are heavily focused on striving for. That's what consumes most of their energy and most of their effort in life. And you see this everywhere. And in the passage before the one we'll focus on this morning, Jesus reminds us as his disciples that this striving for the things of the world should not characterize the lives of the disciples of Christ. Our priorities are not the priorities of this world. Our priorities are God's kingdom and God's priorities. So look at what he says in verses 19 to 21. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, so we are to be people who strive and are ambitious and hardworking, absolutely. But our priority is God's kingdom, not the things of this world. If you're striving, your focus is on the things of this world, then your heart is going to belong to this world. When as followers of Christ, it should belong to our Lord and his kingdom. That's what he says in verse 24. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now this striving, this ambition that you see throughout the world, there's a number of reasons for it. Most notably in this world is because people of this world don't know Christ. 
they don't know the Lord. So it makes sense. What they're striving for is the things of this world. But even as believers in Christ who are faithfully trying to live out the life that God's called us to live, we can still fall into the trap of being over, overly devoted to this world. And one of the triggers for that potentially is a lack of trust in God, right? We fail to trust God. And so when we're not trusting God, we think, hey, I need these things. And if I'm not properly trusting God, then I'm gonna take it into my own hands to pursue these things. And even as those who are, of us who are faithfully seeking Christ with all our hearts and wanting to live for him, we can still fall into this trap. And that's what Jesus really helps us with in verses 25 to 34, where he tells us, the Christian need not worry for God is a loving father. And as the Bible often does, it's going to tell us, here's the sin to put off and here's the righteousness that you're to put on in replacement of that sin. So we're going to look at that really in that same pattern. We're going to start with what do we put off? And in verses 24 to 32, Jesus gives us the command not to worry. Let's read verses 24 to 32. We're going to focus on verse 25, but it's just what Jesus is talking about in the prior passage is so important that I want to read verse 24 along with it. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, and they do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we, we what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Jesus starts in verse 25 with this statement, for this reason, again, linking up what he was talking about in verse 24 with what he's gonna begin to start teaching in verse 25. And in verse 24, he reminds us, we cannot serve money, we cannot serve the things of this world and God. We can't serve two masters. And this concept of being a slave to money should be very familiar to us, right? I mean, I'm, I think that's just, you look through human history, all cultures, all times, it's a very 
common theme, but it's definitely common in our culture. Being a slave to money is a very common thing. People build their lives around careers, even from an early age. I mean, that's why you focus in school, right? That's why you do so well in school, so you can have a great career. And when you get out, you focus on the career. And we, we praise people for that. In verse 24, Jesus tells us our focus and our devotion should be God. We should be slaves to him, not money or careers. But there's a natural challenge here, right? Like who plans to go out and eat after, after church today? Some people plan. Like if you go to Chipotle, you order your, your burrito, what are they going to expect from you before they hand you that burrito? Money, right? And like, what if your car's low on gas? You got to stop and fill that thing up to get to Chipotle, right? And what's it going to take? Money. All throughout the day, we spend money, even for the most basic of things. It's easy to become a slave to money because we live in an economic system that demands it. It demands it for the basic purchases of life. Medicine is expensive, right? Anybody had to do anything medical lately? It's pretty wild. Like we live in this economic system that demands money. So if you have no money, then eating is going to be tough. Clothing is going to be tough. Proper shelter for you and your family, it's going to be tough. And so we need these things because we need these things and because of these realities, it is very easy to get fixated on money. It is very easy to become a slave to money. And it's tough to, to let go of that because you, you start thinking, if, if I'm not striving like the world around me for money, how am I gonna survive? How am I gonna have these basic needs for life? And that is why Jesus so closely attaches this, you can't serve money with the truth. Don't forget, your father, your God is a loving heavenly father who knows that you need all these things. And he is more than willing and more than able to provide these things. Jesus gives us four principles here and this command not to worry, he gives us four principles that I wanna highlight for us. Principle number one, life is about more than our physical existence. Isn't it hard to get your mind around that? One of my best friends, one of my best friends, very faithful man, doesn't live here. His, uh, his, his three-year-old died about a year ago from cancer. And I was talking to him about a week ago. He's still struggling, as you can imagine, right? Very faithful man, though. And one of the things we talked about is like the, the, something that God has highlighted for him so vividly through this struggle is that life is about so much more than just our physical existence. Life is about so much more than our physical existence. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 25. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Life is not about our physical bodies. 
our physical existence. Now that's not to say it's not important, right? What we do in this physical life and in this physical body is absolutely important. God commands us, live in your physical body and in your physical life in a way that honors and glorifies God in a way that invests in his kingdom. Jesus, if you go look at the passage before this, he talks about storing up treasure, right? But he says, store up treasure in the kingdom of God. It's what we do in these physical bodies that invest in the kingdom of God that'll last for eternity. We live for the glory of God and his purposes. And God even gives us good things to enjoy in this life. We experience that every day. It's one of the things that's really stood out to me probably in the past six months. You know, people are always asking like, hey, what's God been teaching you? The past six months, one of the things that's really jumped out to me from like Psalms, and then I think of 1 Timothy 6, 17, God gives us good things to enjoy in this life and even enjoy in these bodies. We can enjoy very food very much, but this pleasure of eating that God allows us to enjoy is not what life is about, right? Um, we can even enjoy clothes, but the pleasures of fashion are very much not what this life is about. And we can stretch this out to really any physical thing that we enjoy. When you compare it up against the kingdom of God and up against the horizon of eternity, the things of this world grow strangely dim, right? We realize how much of a vapor the things of this world are. We can get obsessed over cars and that's perfectly fine, but put that up against God and his kingdom and it seems really silly, right? Our homes, think about how much we are consumed by our homes in our life. Like it's one of the main things we think about. Yet put that up against the horizon of eternity and God's eternal kingdom and it becomes something that seems very trivial and is very trivial in light of God's glory and his kingdom. And you can stretch that out to anything in this world that you enjoy in this body. Those are blessings from God. He should be glorified with them. You serve him with them. You thank him for them. But we realize that nothing in this physical life is anything more than a vapor. Our purpose in life should be wrapped up in the unending, unparalleled glory of God is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Our priority in life is God's glory and his purposes. And here's the beautiful thing about the Christian life. Like, isn't it really good to know that your purpose, like what you've been assigned to do, that God promises you success? Isn't that awesome? I just took a new job this past week. Same company, but new job. Is it gonna go well? I sure hope so. I'm gonna try hard, but like there's no guarantees, right? Like I failed at plenty of things in life before. I'm gonna try really hard to not put this on that list, but there's no guarantees. What I love though, is that my ultimate purpose in serving Christ in his kingdom and glorifying him God promises me success. Isn't that remarkable? 
And the reason I am promised success is not because of me. I can guarantee you that. The reason I am promised success is because God allows his spirit, the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of me. And he doesn't ask me to do anything else other than be faithful wherever he has put me. Be faithful. And he gives us the spiritual gifts and the equipping we need to honor and serve him. And I'm not gonna do it perfectly, but his grace is sufficient to cover all the places I will fall, fall short. And that's not unique to me. That's the promise God gives to every single one of us. And we'll return to this later in the passage, but Jesus promises us if we abide in him, we will bear much fruit if we abide in him. And we're gonna make mistakes along the way. We're not gonna do it perfect, but God's grace is sufficient. And then 1 Corinthians 12, we'll glance at that here in a little bit too, but it promises every single one of us has been given by the Holy Spirit the ability to serve one another and serve the church for the purposes of being fruitful for his kingdom. It is a beautiful, beautiful truth that what life is about is serving God's kingdom and by his grace and power, he enables us to do that. This is what life is about. Stop getting so wrapped up in the vain, fleeting, material things of this world. But there's a second principle provided by Jesus as to why we should not worry about our physical necessities in life. And I love this second principle because it shows us just how down to earth Jesus is. And I love that the Bible does this all the time. The Bible is so realistic about our life and our experience. Jesus here speaks to our needs because look, for us, for many of us, the reality is we're not worried about where that next meal is coming from or like where we're going to sleep tonight. But there are plenty of this people in this world who are like, hey, you know, I'm not worried about buying jet skis or having a dedicated exercise room in my house. There are plenty of people in this world who legitimately are worried about feeding their kids and putting a roof over their head. And Jesus says, don't even worry about that. Your heavenly father is a great and loving father that cares for all the details of his creation. And he loves you dearly. Principle number two here, God is a good and loving father. And he gives us two illustrations of this. The first one is the birds of the air. He says in verse 26, look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? You see, the birds of the air, they go out and find food, but it's God who provides for them. Jesus says, uh, they don't sow nor reap nor gather. Like they're not, think about our life in this world. How many people work 60, 70, 80 hours a week toiling for the things of this world. And Jesus says, look at the birds. Yes, they go out and find the food. They don't just sit there. They don't just sit back and like 
wait for God to come drop food on them. They go and find it. They go and get it. But God provides what they need. They simply do what God has designed them and purposed them to do. And God provides for them. And Jesus says, are you not worth much more than they? When you see the things of creation being cared for by God, the birds here that Jesus gives us the example of, were birds created in the image of God? No, you were. Did Jesus die for the birds? No, Jesus died for you. Are the birds, can the birds call themselves the children of God? No, but in Christ, you can. And if God provides in this way for the birds, how much more is he willing and able to provide for you as his child? He is our perfect heavenly father. He is our loving heavenly father. And we have the privilege of being his children. Jesus gives another illustration, much in the same vein here, God's care for the earth. He says in verse 28, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow and they do not toil nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the fur furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Jesus points to the beauties of the earth and the specific illustration he uses here is the wildflowers. Now, I'm not much of a nature person. I'm just not, okay? I don't know why, just, it's a defect. But my wife, her family has a ranch and if you go to that ranch in the springtime, the wildflowers are insane. Even for somebody like me who just doesn't generally get into that kind of thing, I have to sit there and look at these wildflowers throughout the field and throughout the ranch. And I'm like, wow, that is amazing. They are so dense and everywhere and vibrant and like the whole place is just lit up with color. And this is West Texas. It looks like Mars most of the time, right? But if you land there at the right time of the year, it is absolutely beautiful. And you know what's remarkable? No human had anything to do with this. Nobody planted those. Nobody's out there arranging them or tending to it. It is God putting his display on glory. It's God saying, look at the care that I put into my creation. Look at how I display my glory in my creation. And think about just the things of this earth from a physical creation standpoint and maybe like even expand it, right? Like galaxies and black holes and planets. There's spectacular things throughout God's creation and no human endeavors, no human achievements even come close to the creation of God. 
that's the point Jesus makes with Solomon here, right? Solomon, from a human perspective, was as wealthy as they came. From a human perspective, as wise as they came, as powerful as they came. And the point Jesus makes in verse 29 is that even the most powerful men on this planet with all the resources, they don't do anything that compares to the splendor and the power that God displays throughout his creation. And I know Solomon was a few thousand years ago, but that applies today, right? Like we've got the richest people on the planet just flinging themselves into space now. That's like their thing to do. It doesn't compare to what God has created. They're flinging themselves into space just trying to understand and explore a fraction of what God has made. Wonders beyond our imagination. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. None of these things, no matter what you find in this world that is so spectacular, none of it was created in the image of God. You were. Isn't that remarkable? That of all this glorious stuff, you are the pinnacle of God's creation. Jesus died to redeem you. Nothing else can claim to be a child of God, to belong to God in the way that we do. We alone are called his children. So when you see the greatness of creation and the things around you that just blow you away, think of what God will do for you. If his power does that for the lesser things, think about how great his power is for you. He showed us in Christ. I mean, is there any more great display, greater of a display of what God has done for us than in Jesus Christ? That he sent his only son to come and take the wrath for our own sin, the punishment that we deserve, it was our sin. We're the ones who chose to make ourselves enemies of God. Yet he loved us so much, he's so merciful and so gracious that he sent his son to pay the penalty for us. Romans 8.32, this is the point that Paul makes. If you're worried about life and about the details and the technicalities of life, The point Paul makes in Romans 8.32 is, how will he who gave his only son to die for our sins, if he did that, how would he also not with that freely give us all things, everything that we need? Oh, us of little faith. We can be so illogical in sinfulness and our lack of faith. Our thinking becomes so easily distorted. I was reminded of this recently, my prior job, teaching new folks that we hire. And like, they're great people, but they're new, they're learning. 
And I would regularly give them assignments and sit there nervously because I'm like, they're so inconsistent as new people. What are they gonna turn in? I get nervous about it. And it struck me about six weeks ago. How often do I treat God that way? As if if he's some new trainee that just walked in. And I'm sitting here looking at the things of life and I'm like acting as if God's inconsistent, as if God's ever been anything other than extraordinarily faithful, not just in my own life, but in the life of the church and in the history of the church. Study church history because it shows you the faithfulness of God from generation to generation. There's been a lot of ups and downs, a lot of setbacks. God is always faithful. Oh, us of little faith. So principle one, life is about more than our physical existence. Principle two, God is a good and loving father. Principle three that Jesus gives here, here gives us here when his command not to worry, it's pointless. It accomplishes nothing. It is absolutely pointless. In fact, the only thing it really does potentially accomplish is negative. But as far as good, our worry is pointless. In verse 27, Jesus says, and who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? Can you add a single hour to your life by worrying? You can probably take a few years off your life by worrying. Science will tell you that, but you're not adding anything to it. It's a rhetorical question Jesus is asking here. No one can add even a single hour to their life. God alone is in control of our every breath. And again, praise be to God that he is our loving heavenly father because he is the one who is in control of every breath. History bears this out. Look at all the wealthy people, the rich people who have like thrown everything they had at staying healthy or once they got sick of being healed. You can only do so much. You can only do so much. Our lives are in the hands of God. And one last principle here, principle four, it is worldly. Living a life of anxiety and worry and striving for the things of this world, living a life that is consumed by striving for the things of this world, that is not how Christians are called to live. Verses 31 and 32, Jesus says, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Uh, Jesus here brings up two groups of people and the reality back then is the same as today. There's two groups of people in this world. There's those who belong to God and there's those who do not. Those are the only two groups. And in Old Testament times, uh, the nation of Israel, the Jews were the people of God. They were the ones who were chosen by God, redeemed out of Egypt. They were God's chosen people. Everybody else was Gentiles. That's what Jesus is referring to here. And the people of God, they belong to God 
And there was an expectation that as God's people, their lives should be radically different, radically altered because they belong to him. Sure, the Gentiles are gonna do their own thing. The Gentiles are gonna go their own way. They're gonna have all sorts of different philosophies and religions and way of living, but they aren't God's people. You are, you live as my people. It changes their, their priorities and way of life were to be different. This principle absolutely applies today as followers of Christ. There's still only two groups of people in this world. There's those who have placed their faith in Christ and through Jesus Christ belong to God. And there's those who have not. There's no neutrality. There's no third option. And if our lives belong to Christ, the message of the Bible is crystal clear. Our lives should be radically different, radically changed. Our priorities and ways of living, radically different. We belong to him. We are his possession. So you could, you could change the words of Christ here. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? Like our, our lives should not be dictated by a striving for the things of this world for the, instead of Gentiles, for those who are outside of Christ, eagerly seek all these things. But for us, our heavenly father knows that we need all these things because of our relationship to God. And here's the critical part, who he is because of his character. We should trust in him and not have lives consumed with striving for the physical things of this world. It's about God's character. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. God is in control of everything. He is all powerful. There's nothing you could possibly need physically or spiritually that God cannot provide. But his character and his attributes don't end at omnipotence. It goes on. God is love. Think about when you start pairing those things together. Not only is your heavenly father an all-knowing, all-powerful God, but he is also perfectly loving. That changes everything. It changes everything. His goodness and his care for us changes us from having to strive and focus on just meeting our needs and the things of this world. We can trust he's gonna do that and pour our lives into serving him in his kingdom. Leave it to those who don't know these truths to focus on this world, right? I mean, what else are you gonna do? If you don't know anything about God's eternal kingdom and you don't know a good and loving heavenly father, of course you're gonna focus on this th the things of this world. What else do you have? This is it. You're gonna make it as good as you can for this short time you're here. But for us, that's not our perspective. So Jesus gives this command not to worry. 
But like I talked about at the beginning, the Bible always says, hey, put off this sin and put on this righteousness. Jesus does the same thing here. Um, it's always about putting off sin and putting on righteousness. So he says, don't worry about this world. Don't be consumed with the things of this world. Your obsession should not be on the things of this world. So let Jesus tell us what to put on. Where should our obsession be? And it's his kingdom and his glory. Uh, the command to live for God, our second part here, verses 31 to 34. Jesus says, do not worry then, saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Uh, when he says seek first, that's your first priority. This should have preeminence in your life. This should be your obsession. Isn't it remarkable how God has created us to be obsessed with things? Like you look around and see how hard people work. Like I, I remember when Michael Phelps was doing all the Olympic stuff and you read his training regiment and like how every single component of his life was oriented towards him being an incredible Olympic athlete. It's remarkable. And you go look at some, some of these like CEOs of their company or people who are highly successful in their field and you see the dedication that they have to being number one, to being at the top. Look, God made us to be hardworking. God made us to to have that obsession with pouring ourselves into investing in something. But sin skews that to where as humans, we usually do that with the wrong target. Jesus says, no, yes, you do be obsessed. You do pour yourself into something. You do orient every aspect of your life towards something. And that something is a first top priority is God's kingdom and his righteousness. His kingdom, God's glory. Do you realize the privilege it is to be a part of the church and the body of Christ and that North Lake Bible Church is just a small component of God's bigger kingdom? But our lives should be oriented towards investing in his kingdom. We do that through evangelism. We're about to start talking about evangelism in here and I'm really excited for that because when we talk about seeking first his kingdom, making it a priority to serve God's kingdom, evangelism is a key part of that. And then it goes from there to discipleship and that in our families and in our interactions with one another, when we seek first God's kingdom and we serve his kingdom, it's about making disciples and teaching our children and teaching one another and loving one another and asking how can we build one another up. The, the primary way or one of the key venues in which God has given us to seek first his kingdom and to love his kingdom and to serve his kingdom is here in the church. Serving God's glory 
He also says, seek his righteousness. And we're gonna talk more about this here in a moment. Um, but it, seeking first his righteousness is about obedience to him. It's about daily looking at our lives and looking for those areas of disobedience and being quick to repent, quick to put off those sins and quick to pursue his righteousness, put on his righteousness. And we are going to fall short every day, every hour, we're going to fall short. And because of that, we're so grateful for the gospel that ultimately it's the righteousness of Christ that covers all our inevitable shortcomings. Our obsession is to be the eternal kingdom of God. There's four areas of focus that I would give us when it comes to seeking God's kingdom in his righteousness. And we'll kind of blend in. This will be sort of the application as well. Blending in as we talk about seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The first area of focus that I would give you is in your mind. It's in the knowledge of God. Daily striving to know God more. To know his truth more. Do you realize that that's where the process of change starts is in your heart? Because if you're a believer in Christ, then the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you and is actively at work in you to change you more and more into the image of Christ. And it starts in the mind as we grow in the knowledge of God, that's what the Holy Spirit uses, his truth from God's word to shape and mold us. Uh, I'll give you, a, there's a few passages I'll give you here. We'll look at Romans 12, one and two. I love this passage because chapters one through 11 are Paul just explaining to us very deeply the gospel. And then in chapter 12, he switches gears to how, this is where you apply it. And he starts in the mind, he says, therefore, because of all these gospel truths, because of all chapters one through 11 about the gospel, therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. That's our physical existence. Present your physical existence as a living sacrifice to God, as a holy sacrifice to God, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable spiritual service of worship and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. It's all about having your mind transformed. Joshua 1.8, Joshua's got this big task ahead of him. Moses is dead. Now it's Joshua's job to lead people into the promised land. And it's not as easy as it sounds when you say it like that, right? I mean, there's people there already they got to get rid of. The people haven't had the greatest track record getting from Egypt to the promised land. It's a big task, okay? And so when Joshua is being commissioned, Joshua 1.8, God says, hey, look, Joshua, this book of the law should not depart from your mouth but you should meditate on it day and night so that you'll be careful to do all that is written in it. 
That, that, that's the, the first key recipe, uh, to key to the ingredient that, that God gives to Joshua. Meditate on my word day and night. So as, as we look to shift our focus from being obsessed with the things of this world, and that's where the worry comes from, right? Like this is, gets back to worry. That's where the worry comes from as you get overly focused on the world, obsessed on the world. As we shift our focus to being instead obsessed with the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it starts with just growing in our knowledge of God, a love for his truth, a love for his word, daily intake of his word, making that a top priority. But if you're like me, you can't just read it in the morning and then shut your book and go along with your day because it takes me about eh, 15 minutes for my life and mine to get off track onto worldly things, right? So it's like an every hour thing. I've got to, maybe I don't have the time every hour to come back and like read another passage, but I do have the time every hour to draw my mind back to God's word through memory verses and meditation. And I need that. I mean, I really genuinely make it like my goal at the top of every hour to take at least a few moments and have a verse ready that I've just, this is my verse for the day. I'm going to go back to it because it just takes me a second to get off track. I got to constantly grow in my knowledge of God and just obsession with his word. The second um, area of focus and application I would give you for seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness is make serving the church a top priority. Make serving the church a top priority. Like how big of a deal is the church in the New Testament? Well, other than a few individuals, most of these letters are written to churches, right? Like it's written like the church is a huge deal. God really cares about the church and how it functions. And here's how it should operate. Here's how it should operate. All the New Testament is focused on that. And going back to what I said earlier, God promises us if we abide in him, and stay close to him, he will make us fruitful in the process of serving him and serving his church. Matthew, or John 15, five says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Those are our options. We can bear much fruit in Christ or apart from him, we can do nothing. And when it comes to serving the church, this is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, each one of us is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. And then he goes through a bunch of examples of spiritual gifts. Recognize that if you are still alive on this earth as a follower of Christ, it's for the purpose of serving him. And as you read through the New Testament, the primary arena in which that happens is through the body of Christ. We are connected to one another, whether we like it or not. For better or worse, we are connected to one another. When you suffer, I suffer. When I suffer, you suffer. When you grow spiritually and prosper, I get to rejoice and enjoy the benefit of that too. When I grow spiritually and prosper, you get to enjoy the benefit of that too. The body of Christ, we are connected. It's how God designed it. 
And we should look for ways to serve and love one another because it's the primary means on this earth through which God has given us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And I'm gonna pick up the pace here. I'm sorry, we're going a little over, so I'll go quickly. Ephesians chapter four, the third area of focus and point of application as we shift our focus from um, the things of this world to being focused on serving Christ, it's pursue righteousness. Our lives should be radically different in the pursuit of righteousness. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 1 to 11, Jesus is saying, these are the characteristics that define the life of a follower of Christ, of a child of the kingdom. One of those is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Paul says this, Ephesians 4, one of the great chapters on putting off sin and putting on righteousness. He says, Ephesians 4, um, verse one, therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then in verses um, 17 and 18, he says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And then he says in verse 22, in reference to this former manner of life, that life of lostness and sin, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with lust of deceit, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Part of the life of a Christian, a huge part of it, is pursuing righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Don't be obsessed with the things of this world. Be obsessed with pursuing righteousness. The last area of focus I'll give us here quickly is have a robust prayer life. Have a robust prayer life. I've heard people say like, for the Christian, praying should be like breathing. You just gotta do it to survive. You can't. You, you weren't, God, God does not intend for you and does not enable you to live this life on your own. You are dependent upon him for everything. Pray like it. How often do you, did Jesus pray? A lot. Like prayer was very characteristic of the life and ministry of Jesus. If that was true for Christ, I mean, come on, how much more true should it be for us? Even look at the apostles and, and read through Acts. How much does prayer, how, how big of a part of prayer, how big is it in their life? It's huge. If it's like that for the apostles, if Paul has to write about praying all the time to the churches and the people he's writing to, how much more do we need to pray? We are dependent upon God for everything. Prayer should characterize our lives. Paul, when he's writing to the Philippians, Philippians 4, um, says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, 
let your requests be made known to God. He told the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Have a robust prayer life. And Jesus gives us a summary statement that we'll close with here in verse 34 of Matthew chapter six. He says, so do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Does Jesus sugarcoat life? No, you're gonna have trouble, okay? You have trouble today. There's gonna be trouble tomorrow. Next week, more trouble. Next month, next year. We live in a sinful fallen world. We've got our own sin that creates a lot of problems for us. We've got the sin of the people around us that create problems for us. We live in a sinful fallen world. There will be trouble. But the key is we're not focused on the things of this world. Our striving is not for the things of this world because that's where worry and anxiety will always take a hold when we become overly focused on the needs that we have in this world and the wants that we have in this world. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We've got a loving, perfect, heavenly father that will do everything for us. We have no need to be afraid. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your infinite goodness to us. And just ask, Lord, that these truths that we can intellectually understand so easily, logically understand so easily, it, it all makes perfect sense, Lord. Please take these truths and let our hearts and our minds, our emotions, which are so easily swayed, let them focus and live out these truths, Lord. Make these things just the the theme of our lives so that we can honor you, glorify you, seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And we love you so much. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.